So good morning. It's Resurrection Sunday, right? So we're here and we're gathered to worship together and to celebrate, right? To celebrate the life, the death, and the resurrection of our Messiah, Jesus. And so uh, there's a few categories of people that might be here. You might be here because you are totally in. Like you're here to celebrate and you want to be here and it's awesome. And then you might be in this other reality where maybe you're here because someone made you come to church because it's Easter. And listen, that's fine. That's completely cool. And maybe you're here and you don't even know why. Like you just, well, I open my eyes and here I am. I have no idea how this happened. All of those are completely acceptable. So regardless of which category you fall into or maybe a different one, I just want you to know that you are really welcome uh, here today. Uh, Desperation Church is a community of people that love other people. That's all um, that, that really I can say about it. You know, we love people. And so if you're here, hopefully you feel that. If you haven't, tell me and I'll get on to everybody next week. So uh, we've been anticipating today, uh, for a couple of weeks, we've been in the study about different people who saw Jesus and kind of their responses and their reactions and the different things that happened as a result of that. And we, we've all these men and women who've seen him face to face and what happened. And so one of the things that we know and one reoccurring theme that I think that we share with Jesus and his disciples and all of the people that are involved uh, in these accounts of his life, one thing that we all share is this, that life unfolds in ways we don't expect. How many would raise your hand in agreement to that statement right there, that life unfolds in ways we don't expect? If you're married right now, you might be sitting right next to the unfolding of a way that you didn't expect in your life, right? It's true. It happens, right? Life unfolds in all these ways that we don't expect. We might have the greatest plans. We might have everything together. We might have uh, everything in this detailed like binder, like Leslie Nope, right? You know, there's like three binders to tell you what the plan's going to be. Some of you got that joke. Uh, you know exactly what's going to happen and you know exactly when, but things don't often happen that way. And that's definitely the case with the disciples and Jesus and all the people that were close to him. I think Jesus knew exactly what to expect. In fact, he was warning them over and over again what was about to happen, and no one got it. Jesus was teaching his disciples. He was giving them these warnings, and uh, he's like, guys, things are about to get really, really difficult. And they're you know, sort of like, yeah, we know, we know, people are after you kind of thing. But then he starts to tell them, listen, all of this, everything that's about to happen and unfold, when you start to understand it, you're going to realize that it was uh, necessary in order to welcome God's kingdom right? Because uh, we, we got together for Good Friday and we remembered uh, the sacrifice of Jesus. You cannot have Resurrection Sunday without Good Friday. You have to have both of them. They're both part of the same deal. And so everything that Jesus told his disciples would happen, it did. Everything he said, like all this stuff, it happened as he said that it would. And everyone saw him lifted up as king, but not in the way that they expected, Right? Jesus came and he absorbed all the pain and all of the suffering and all of the hurt of this world. And you have God who became, or God the king who humbles himself, right? He offers grace and he offers mercy and he offers forgiveness in this self-giving love, right? This act, the greatest act of love that we've ever known. And so the cross becomes this meeting place of heaven and of earth, uh, something that had previously been this symbol of death and destruction, becomes a symbol of life and resurrection. And so heaven and earth in that moment collided and that's why we're here. Through this resurrection, this resurrection of Jesus, it's the death of death. 
Have you ever thought about that? Jesus' resurrection is the death of death. I, I, I think you should be a little more excited about that, right? Yeah, that's pretty cool. Uh, Linda shared an awesome cartoon this uh, week on Facebook and it was of Jesus' grave and the stone had rolled away and you had the grim reaper smashed underneath it. I thought it was awesome. So it's like the death of death here. God is taking back his kingdom from this world and from all of its powers. And that's why today is a celebration. Jesus, the son of God, the Messiah is here. We're singing these songs, these songs. uh, The power in these songs is not because the songs themselves are powerful. The power in the songs is what they're about and who they're about. Jesus is alive. But in his final moments, guys, when he was dying on a cross, only a handful of the people closest to him remained. You had Jesus' mother, Mary. You had two of his disciples, Mary Magdalene and John. And then there were a few other women that were there that were present at the cross in this moment, his most difficult moment. And everyone else, with the exception of his betrayer, Judas, had scattered. They'd gone away in the confusion of everything that had happened and transpired. A lot of this probably had to do with the fact that they thought they were next. They thought that they would be hunted down. They thought uh, that they might be killed themselves. And so Jesus declares, it is finished. He draws his final breath and he dies. And so the Sabbath is coming. And so as part of that whole thing, in accordance with Jewish law, they take his body away quickly and they quickly bury him in a tomb. And that kind of sets up what we're going to talk about today because that wasn't the end of the story, right? In fact, the story's just getting good. I mean, there's some really cool things that happen, but now the story's really worth telling because after the Sabbath, several of these women who are closest to Jesus, they actually go to the tomb because they want to prepare the body properly. They wanted to take care of him. And so over the course of this morning, strange things start to unfold. Some really strange, I mean, we read this and we're like, oh yeah, that's, that's pretty weird, you know? Yeah, there's angels and stuff. And it's like, no, this is freaky. This is weird. There's weird things that are happening. We have the women that are closest to Jesus, a couple of his disciples, they visit the tomb and he's not there. He's missing. He's gone. And so they all have these different reactions. It sets up all of these encounters with angelic beings telling, well, he's not here, he's risen. I used to have this record as a kid. It was the the child's stories on Bible. And the guy's voice was awesome. He's like, why do you look for the living among the dead? He is risen, right? And then you have this organ kind of thing happen. As a kid, like, that's the bomb. That's awesome. He's risen. So we're going to take a look at a few of these encounters and see what uh, we can learn and see how they saw Jesus through them. And so we're mostly going to be in John chapter 20. We'll bounce over to Luke for a minute. I'll try and keep you uh, with me on that. So Mary Magdalene, she's a part of this group of disciples that follows Jesus. She shows up at the tomb before light. And she notices that the stone is rolled away, right? And this is a big deal for a lot of reasons. Number one, we know that there were Roman guards that were stationed and they're nowhere to be found. Another thing that we know is that the stone weighed between one and two tons. So there was no way one person was just going to be rolling this thing out of the way. It was a big deal. So her immediate thought is, oh my goodness, Jesus' enemies have taken his body. And one thing uh, that, they, that could have been happening there is maybe they took the Jewish leaders or someone took it to bury it in a criminal's grave, an unmarked grave. That's one of the things um, that she might have thought. So frightened, she runs to Peter and to John and she starts to tell them. And so Peter and John get into this foot race to the tomb. And if you've not read it, it's kind of funny because John is the guy that's telling the story. So of course, John's the one that wins the race, right? 
And if you read it, it's really, really hilarious. It's like, okay, obviously you're the guy that documented this because, you know, anyway. So they get into this foot race. They're on the way to the tomb. John arrives first and he looks in to see that something is not right. Okay, something's going on here. But he doesn't go in. He waits for Peter to catch up and then they both go inside, probably because he was a little afraid, if you want my opinion. But anyway, one of the things you need to know about tombs in that day, uh, it wasn't just like a walk into the cave and look around type of deal. You actually had to climb down in it and there were these work areas where several bodies would be stored and you the table where you could actually uh, work on a body to prepare it and those kinds of things. So it wasn't a comfortable thing. And so there wasn't a lot of light. They probably had a lantern with them. So they have to crouch down, right, and get into this opening and crawl down into the space to see what's really happening. And all they see are these claws that are lying there and the face cloth that had laid over his face is folded neatly and resting where his head was. And so in John chapter 20, verse 8, it says this. Of course, John's going to point out that he won the race one more time. Then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. So John saw and believed, but in this case, compared to all the other times that we've talked about this over the past couple of weeks, right? Not seeing Jesus changes everything in this moment. He's not there. Something is going on. And so, they knew something was happening, but they weren't sure what yet, so the disciples go back to their homes. And meanwhile, Mary, Mary Magdalene actually shows up. She makes it to the tomb finally, after the disciples have left. And she remains at the tomb to mourn, right? She's sad. Uh, she doesn't completely know what's going on, and all of a sudden, two men clothed in white are there. And they're like, why are you crying? Why are you weeping? And as she starts to answer them, she feels this presence behind her. Have you ever felt that before? Like someone was watching you? It's kind of like this deal. When, of course, in that situation, it'd be even freakier, right? Because you're talking to two guys that shouldn't be there, right? And then all of a sudden you feel this presence. And so uh, she turns around and there's this man that she thinks is the gardener, which is interesting. And she explains, listen, if you've moved the body, just tell me where my master is and I will take him away. But it's Jesus, right? We know that. And she knows that soon because he says, Mary, or Miriam, right, in Hebrew. And instantly, with just a word, she recognizes him for who he is. So Jesus tells her a few things, but the main one is, go tell the disciples that I'm ascending to the Father. And so in verse 18 of chapter 20, Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I've seen the Lord! I mean, can you imagine what that would be like? I'm gonna guess they probably didn't believe her. And we'll find out here in just a second why. But she told him, told him everything that Jesus had told her to tell them. Whatever she said, we get this picture that the disciples weren't completely convinced. Maybe they thought she was overcome with grief. There's all kinds of reasons why that could be. But we catch up with them later that evening. And most of the disciples are gathered together in this secret location, right? They're in hiding because they are in fear for their lives. You guys have to remember that Judas was an insider. He knew all the places that they would hang out. And the last thing they remember is Judas bringing uh, guards to take Jesus away. So their thought in their minds is like, okay, this is going to happen to us too. We got to find some place to hide out that, Jesus, that Judas doesn't know about. And so uh, they go there and it's only a matter of time they're thinking in their minds before the authorities are going to come and they're going to arrest them too. Even with Mary's testimony, they didn't know what to think. And we wouldn't either, right? We like to be kind of judgy with the disciples. Like, oh, why didn't you guys get it? It's so plain. But we're on this end of the story, right? 
We're not them. We're not in the midst of this thing that they don't understand. And so it's all happening. They're hiding. And then she tells them, and they're like, I can imagine the conversation in that room. Like, what if it's true? Like, what if, what if she's not like in shock? What, what if this really happened? Or maybe it's like, okay, what's our next move? Do we need to move to another town? There's like this whole mix of emotions and thoughts that are running through their minds. They're mourning the loss of their friend, right? They're in this deep grief, and yet they're still trying to put all of these things together. And if you've ever been in grief, you know it's really hard to think, especially about the future. They're thinking, I thought Jesus was totally going to lead this revolution, we were going to be a part of it only to be defeated and feeling hopeless. And maybe they're even a little bit angry. Like, man, that was kind of a lame trick. Worried about their families. Wondering if a knock would come on the door at any minute and they would be taken away. Wondering if they'd been wrong. And I think if we're honest with ourselves, I think each one of us has felt, or maybe even right now, feels that same way. Maybe at one time or another you felt that way where you're wrestling with this reality of this world that we live in that is fractured and it's broken and uh, it can be painful and how that lines up with this picture of a good and perfect God that we serve and trying to kind of reconcile those two things. I think it's normal to think about those things. I think that everyone does at times. And so part of being human for us, right? As human beings, as created beings, part of our deal is to kind of understand how these things make sense and try and, and work them out. And so for me, I'll just tell you, I have a lot more questions than answers, especially when it comes to reading scripture. I just, I'm going to lay it out there for you. I'm just being honest. Like every time that I learn something in scripture, it just brings up more questions for me. But I can find nothing that makes sense about any version of this universe viewed only in human terms. In other words, there has to be a creator. There has to be a grand designer. There has to be someone that has put this thing together and has a plan and a purpose for it, in my opinion. We can look at humanity, right? We see great beauty. We see all these wonderful things that human beings can do and make and are capable of. I mean, if you look out in the lobby, the responses to what happened in here on Friday night, Good Friday and the artwork my buddy Jay up here creating. Like human beings can do some amazing things and God has put that uh, in us. But there's also all of this great chaos and suffering in this world that we struggle with too. And what I think that does, at least for me, is it makes me fully aware of my limitations. The things that I don't know. The things that I can't do. And what it does for me anyway is it makes me see that I need God. Right? It's like the only, uh, the only solution to what's happening, the only plan that seems to fit how all this will reconcile is the plan that God is working on and whatever he's doing. And I think we see glimpses of that sometimes, but I think ultimately what we see is that we need God. So in the death and resurrection of Jesus, I believe we see God's plan coming for us, right? Coming to us as fulfillment, right, for all of the promises that he made, but also um, in response to the brokenness, the brokenness that we brought into the universe. And so that in itself is a beautiful thing. It's this life and this death and this resurrection of Jesus that offers everyone, each person, no matter who you are, no matter where you come from, no matter what you've done, it offers each one of us 
a way, a path to the Father. But from the perspective of of the disciples in this moment, we have to remember that although we know how the story ends, they don't. And in fact, it's not until later that evening that we catch up with the disciples in the narrative. We find them hiding out, as I said before. It's easy to imagine all this fear and excitement mixed together as they discussed what happened. And so we pick it up in verse 19. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, peace be with you. Think about that for just a second. I don't mean to be disrespectful, but let me put some flesh and blood on that for you. Think about somebody that you've lost in your life, someone that's died. And then all of a sudden you're having dinner with your friends. You start to reach over for a piece of bread. Shalom lachem. Peace be with you. Would that freak you out? Okay. Yes, it would freak me out. And it freaked them out. They're like, what? What? Ah. (laughs) Peace be with you. There's a lot of things that he could have said, and some of them would have been a lot funnier, but I think that this is just like, relax, basically, he's saying. But there's something else, actually. I mean, we understand why he told them, peace be with you, because he knew that it was probably going to be startling. Um, but there's more going on here, because this greeting throughout Scripture, if you look at it, it actually represents a divine visitation, and that's exactly what's happening here. Jesus is announcing something. He's announcing that the Prince of Peace has arrived to bring them peace of his coming kingdom and everything that he had promised them earlier. If you uh, thumb back to John 14, 27, you'll see it there. So they're surprised, right? They're afraid. Maybe they're in shock. The disciples jump to their feet because even then they're like, is he a ghost? How did he get in here? Maybe they're even worried. This is a thought that I had as I was studying this week. Maybe they're even worried that he was there to haunt them because they abandoned him. Have you ever thought about that? It didn't take anything supernatural for Jesus to know what they were thinking. I believe that it was very much shown on their faces. And so he does some things to calm them down and to convince them uh, that he's real. He's not a ghost. He's not an apparition. Uh, In Luke 24, 38, he asks this, why are you troubled and why do doubts arise in your hearts? Seriously, Jesus? We don't even know what we're seeing right now. They couldn't answer him. They were freaking out. His presence, right? They're like, what is going on? But what follows, guys, I believe is this powerful picture of what Jesus does even for us now in our big, or like our biggest moments of doubt and our biggest moments of fear and our biggest moments of discouragement. Check out what he says to them. Verse 39. See my hands and my feet that it is I myself, touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he'd said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. They couldn't believe it. It was too wonderful. It was too marvelous. This could not be true. There was no way that this was really happening. And in our biggest moments of doubt and fear, here's what Jesus does. And this is what he did here. He calls us closer. He calls us to him right? In the moments where we're not sure we're wrestling with something, Jesus calls us closer and he says, see me for yourself. See him for ourselves. That's what he's asking us to do. Rather than running away in those moments or hiding as the disciples were doing, he calls them closer. They'd already heard the reports, the rumors that were circulating. And so there's this moment where Jesus offers them peace and he invites them closer to see that he is real. He shows them his hands, 
He shows them his feet. He says, it's really me, guys. Verse 20. And when he'd said this, he showed them his hands and his side, and then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. They're glad to see him in that moment. Okay, this is really happening. Because remember, probably right before that, maybe they weren't so glad to see him. They were afraid. Can you imagine that? Like the hope returning to their hearts in that moment? Like what would it have been like to just be there? Watching that unfold. He's alive. So right after that, Jesus empowers them with the Holy Spirit and he prepares them to share the message, the good news of God's kingdom. But here's an interesting twist. When Jesus appeared to the disciples to dispel their doubts, not all 11 were there, right? There was one guy that missed it. Remember? Thomas. And so maybe it was a deal where they sent him to get groceries or supplies or something because they were going to be hiding out there for a few days. Uh, Whatever the case, he shows up at the safe house. Hey, guys, uh, they were out of the red pepper hummus, so I had to get the plane, right? Got to be real with this whole thing. Thomas shows up. He comes in and like, Thomas, you won't believe this. We've seen the master. Imagine the disappointment of being the errand boy on the day that Jesus shows up, right? (laughs) Thomas was also called the twin, and it makes me wonder if he was the younger one, so he was always stuck with the chores. I'm not really sure what's happening here. But imagine that disappointment. And again, I think this is something that we can relate to if we put uh, ourselves in maybe a similar context. Whether we're working our jobs or we're going to class or we're running our errands or we're shuttling our kids from place to place, How often do we get caught up in our day-to-day lives and miss the times that Jesus shows up? How often do we busy ourselves with the work of the day and miss those divine appointments and moments? So Thomas doesn't deny that those other guys saw something, right? Clearly, whatever they'd experienced was phenomenal, but he'd not seen it. And so here's what he says in verse 25. Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Now I'm putting a little spice on that. He probably didn't say it like that, but I will never believe. And never is a strong word and I strongly encourage you to never use it. See what I did there. I think there's a powerful lesson here too. Throughout history, Thomas has gotten kind of this bad rap, hasn't he? Being the doubting disciple. Thomas doesn't believe. His lack of faith has been an example for years, but I think there's more to this story than just him not believing. Because we know, if you read, we don't know a lot about Thomas, but we know quite a bit. If you go back to John 11... We learn that he was fully invested as a disciple. When Jesus gets word, right, that their friend Lazarus was ill, he was really, really sick. Remember Lazarus, right? He's the guy that got really sick and Jesus was called to heal him, but Lazarus died prior to Jesus actually making it there. And so Jesus wanted to go. He wanted to go. It was a good friend of his. It was important to him. But everybody was worried that if Jesus went back, 
that he was going to be arrested and killed, right? That was the whole uh, framework of that story and what was going on. And so the disciples are trying to convince him not to go. But Jesus says, I have to do this. And so Thomas is the only disciple that speaks up at the end of that story and says, listen, if he's gonna go, to, if he's gonna go die, we need to go with him. Let's just go die with him. If that's what's gonna happen, that's what's gonna happen. It's kind of that sort of thing. He's the only disciple who spoke up. But within that story, I believe that Jesus actually left us a clue and left his disciples a clue about what was happening here. Because if you remember, uh, the words like that he said, they were, pre- they were preparation, I believe, for his own resurrection. Let's take a look at it. This is in John eleven fourteen 14 and 15. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I'm glad that I was not there so that you may believe, but let us go to him. So what's going on there, right? We've studied this before. Jesus knew exactly what was coming. He'd warned the disciples they would not listen over and over again. He's like, listen, what just happened with Lazarus dying? That's actually gonna be good because I wanna show you something really important. He uses Lazarus' death as this opportunity to prepare his disciples, to prepare them to believe that resurrection is even possible. Before they leave to go see Lazarus, Jesus already knows that he's dead. Jesus already knows what's going to happen. Lazarus will have been dead for four days. And Jesus is like, listen, it's good that we missed this. Because now you'll believe when I raise Lazarus up from death. And of course, Jesus ends up resurrecting him from the dead. And it's one of the coolest horror movie scenes in all of the Bible. Lazarus, come forth. It's not like Jesus that leaves all of his wrappings and stuff behind. We've got a mummy that comes out of this hole. Right? Make that movie, man. That's a movie right there. Jesus is doing something so important here, guys that we have to get a hold of too. Jesus is giving them the ability to believe. He's not just giving them the what to believe. He's giving them the ability to believe. He's showing them this picture of what's going to happen. That Jesus can not only overcome death for someone else, but that he can overcome it for himself. And by overcoming death for himself, this is the best part. He overcomes it for all of us. That's a pretty sweet deal, right? But there's always this one guy, and in this case, it's Thomas. And sure, Thomas knows about Lazarus, but Thomas also knows that he just watched his master brutally murdered on a cross. That wasn't part of what he or any of the disciples saw playing out. But in the end, the kingdom didn't play out the way that anyone expected. And so maybe Thomas missing Jesus was because he was having a crisis of faith. And he's like, you know what? I'm done with this. It could be that maybe Thomas was still willing to die. And he's just saying, you know, listen, I'm going to go live my life. You guys can hide in here all you want. I'm going to go do my thing. We don't know. Whatever the case, we have to understand that Thomas is not ready to believe it. But the reason that he's not ready to believe it is because it was unbelievable in his world view. Let me explain real quick. Uh, Based on his extensive experience with only one exception, dead people stayed dead. Right? The disciples are making this extraordinary claim that the Messiah intended to die and rise to eternal life. 
But accepting this would require him to rethink virtually everything that he believed within the framework of Judaism at that time, especially, including the very nature of who the Messiah was. Again, there's, nothing, there's virtually nothing in Judaism at this moment that anticipated the death of Messiah, not to mention his resurrection to eternal life. And so there's this one guy, Thomas, and he's like, listen, I'm gonna need more than your guys' word on this thing. And he says, again, in verse 25, unless I see it, unless I myself can place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. He knew that unless he could have that first hand experience, the same one that the others had, he would never be able to dispel his personal doubt. So maybe, like the story with Lazarus, for all their sake, especially Thomas's, it was better that he wasn't there because check out what happens. Verse 26, eight days later, whoa, hang on a second. Have you ever, we skip probably right over those three words. Those are kind of an important three words in this whole thing. Because we read the Bible like everything just happens like this. So Thomas is like, I'm throwing down the gauntlet. Jesus, if I don't see this, then I'm just not going to believe it. And then it takes eight days for what's about to happen. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again. And Thomas was with them this time, thank goodness. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Shalom lachem, right? Probably didn't freak them out quite as much this time. There he is. And he says to Thomas, which this part would freak me out because Jesus heard what I said, right? Thomas, put your finger here and see, that my, see my hands. And put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas, let me show you my scar, right? Basically. Do not disbelieve, but believe, right? Jesus showed up. The risen Messiah only revealed himself, guys. We have to think about this. He only revealed himself to those who loved him and identified themselves with his other disciples, right? He doesn't show up to talk to Pilate or any of the Romans, Right? He didn't do that. He doesn't show up to Caiaphas or the leaders who had him killed saying, <laughs> look here. Yeah, it's on. Right? Although that would be really cool. No. Who does he show up to? He shows up to the people who are communing and waiting on him together. His revelation to Thomas happened because Thomas stayed with his family and did not leave their company. Thomas was waiting to see. Listen, guys, it's easy to get worn down in this life. It is. Trauma or disaster, it strikes and it shakes our faith or this, I think sometimes this unrelenting barrage of all the stuff from society and people yelling their opinions and all these things inundate us and wear us down. And we're in the midst of this world that is desperately trying to establish its own kingdom. And in some ways, I believe, trying to scrub any trace of God and faith away. 
And it seems like every media source wants to reinforce an opinion, many times a lie, and make us even question our own experiences. And I'll just be honest, I, I get worn out. I get worn out with it at times. It's like, can the whole world be wrong and we followers of Jesus be right? I believe that's the same question that Jesus' disciples were asking in that moment. Can this be? So the question is, okay, well, what do I do with that? Like, I have doubts. What do I do with my doubts? Do I just shove them down and pretend like that they don't exist, that I don't have them? Do I just uh, whistle a happy tune and pretend like life's always easy and good? I don't believe that that's what we're supposed to do. I believe what Thomas is showing us is that we should take our doubts into our community. We should take our doubts to church. We should take our doubts into our faith community because God can handle our doubts, right? Thomas teaches us, listen, take your stuff with you. Be with your people. Find your tribe of Jesus followers and share your life with them. They're not perfect either. Stick with them as you wrestle with God. Pray privately, serve publicly. Ask Jesus to give you the answers and reveal himself and to bring you the truth. The life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus gives us this all access pass to the Father. And sometimes that's an invitation to wrestle with the things that we don't understand. But what you need to know today more than anything that I've said is that if you think God's hiding from you, you're wrong. God is not hiding. It's not like some cosmic board game where you get to a space and God's like, okay, figure it all out. And once you figure it out, then I'll let you move three spaces forward. That's not the nature of the God that we serve. Because Jeremiah 29, 13 says that if we seek him, we will find him. That's a promise, but it's also an invitation. I love that about him. And we may have to wait eight days. We may have to wait eight years. But seeking God, what that means, it's in the context of loving God and loving one another together. It's in the midst of your tribe, in the midst of your people. It's not a solo mission. It takes others. Others to be with you. In the waiting. And if you've ever had to wait anywhere for any length of time by yourself, it's a drag, right? When you've got someone else there waiting, it's usually less of a drag. If you really want to know the truth, Christ will give it to you. And so in this moment, Thomas finally sees Jesus for himself, and this is his response. Thomas answered him, my Lord, my God. And you'll notice something about his response. Like the disciples had like sort of these freaked out responses, but it was nothing compared to this that we have on record, right? Thomas is the one, my Lord, my God, it's you. It's the whole reason that John saved this one for last, I believe in his gospel because this is the idea that he wanted us to carry with us after we were done reading it. My Lord, my God. 
Guys, each of us has this responsibility, no matter who you are, no matter where you come from, no matter what you've done, whether this is your church or you don't go to church or you have some other church, it doesn't matter. Every one of us has a responsibility to take a good look at Jesus and to make a decision. But here's the thing. It's not a one-time decision. It's an all-the-time decision. It's a decision that starts and ends each day for us. For the rest of the time that we're on this planet. So I believe that Jesus asks all of us, you and me today, have you seen me? Who do you say that I am? But I think even more importantly than that, who am I going to be in your life? Who am I going to be in your life? Our parents can't do it for us. Our husband or our wife can't do it for us. Our friends can't do it for us. Our pastors and elders and leaders can't do it for us. Like Thomas, we have to make the decision. We have to press in and keep looking until we see him for ourselves. So Jesus asks today, have you seen me? I'm gonna invite one of our elders, Tom Pryor, to come up and close us in prayer today. And then afterward, there'll be some people available. If uh, you wanna talk with someone or you'd like to pray for anything, whether it's about something that I've talked about today or anything else, we'll have some folks up here for you. Thank you, Bill. So did you ask me to pray because my name is Thomas John? All right. <laughs> Who grew up Catholic. So this like was my deal. <laughs> and, um, but I'd also like to point it out that in uh, John 20, 29, Jesus has a message for us today. Because the eternal God said, blessed are those who have not seen, but have believed. So in that moment, the eternal God spoke to us today from that room. And it's awesome. So let me pray. Thank you, Father God, for your plan of salvation and for your gift of your son, Jesus. And how you were willing to give your son so that we might live with you for eternity. Thank you, Jesus, for that walk to the cross to live here with us, to die for us, so that we may know your Father and live with you forever. We remember the day today where death was conquered and you rose. What, what a great gift, Father. How can we thank you other than to praise you, to worship you, to remember you, to share you with others, those others who know you and those who don't. So thank you, Father. Thank you for your son, Jesus. 
and the resurrection that brings us such glorious hope today and for all eternity. So I just pray that we all leave today and that we just enjoy our families and that we think of the precious gift so freely given. And I just praise your name, Jesus. In your name I pray, amen.